What's up, everybody? Welcome to Citizen Hope. I'm your host, Jess. And first of all, let me just give a huge thank you to everyone who um, is supporting this podcast, listening to it every week. Thank you for starting your week with me. I truly appreciate every single one of you. And I'm really honored that you give me the opportunity to start your week with positivity and remind you of how awesome you are and of all the things that you're capable of. Before we get into the subject of today's episode, a quick bit of podcast news. The Citizen Hope website is up and running. I'll put a link to the site in the show notes of this episode. And on the website, you can access all of the show notes and resources for every episode, as well as pictures of the people that I highlight in the show. And also, there's an area where you can submit your own stories of everyday heroism, either your own or someone that you know. Uh, I would love to feature all of those stories in an upcoming episode. Okay, so now let me give you a little bit of a heads up about the content of this episode. We're talking about taking extreme measures to survive, more specifically about self-amputation of limbs. So if this is a topic that makes you feel uncomfortable, or if hearing stories about injury, make you feel kind of faint and queasy, this may not be the episode for you, and especially not if you're driving. (laughs) So consider yourself warned. Um, I myself had a really hard time putting this episode together because I am not good with bodily injury. I mentioned like if the stories make you feel faint and queasy, that is me. (laughs) Um, I remember a time uh, in seventh grade health class, one of my classmates was describing an injury he sustained while playing football. And I think I heard about half of the story before I hit the ground. Um, Yep, I fainted. I fell out of my desk. I landed on my friend's backpack. It smashed her lunch and exploded her juice box all over her books. And when I finally came to, the class had been cleared out and I was escorted to the nurse's office. Um, I went home, stayed home for the the whole rest of the day. And when I returned to school the next day, that's when the teasing began. Because I'm sure you know, middle school boys are just the nicest people. Um, I was so embarrassed, just, just totally mortified. And sadly, it wouldn't be the first or the last time that I passed out in my life from actual or perceived pain. Um, each time, totally embarrassing. Um, so why would I even attempt something like this? You might be asking yourself. Well, I think it's really important to tell and retell incredible stories of survival, because I think every one of us hears tales like this and we think, I would never be able to cut off like a pinky finger, let alone an entire arm or a leg. And I mean, from my personal perspective, like the thought is, would I even remain conscious for long enough to get the job done? But if you were to express that kind of doubt to any of the survivors that I'm going to be mentioning in this episode, they'll all tell you the same thing, which is that when you're in that situation, you can do anything because the alternative is being a witness to your own slow death. And that is a powerful motivator. Today, I'm telling the story of Aaron Ralston, an outdoor enthusiast who went into the canyon lands of Utah alone and got trapped by a falling boulder in a slot canyon. Aaron's story is pretty well known, but here are some survivors that you might not have heard about. Turns out that this kind of heroism happens more frequently than we'd probably like, but it does prove the point that we all possess this kind of resolute determination. 
Let's start in 1993 with Bill Jaraki, a 47-year-old ER technician who, while fishing near St. Mary's Glacier in Colorado, was pinned to the ground when a boulder crushed his left leg. Snow was in the forecast, and unfortunately, he'd left his warm jacket in his truck, which was about 300 yards away. Jaraki did not believe that he would survive the night, so he fashioned a tourniquet out of his flannel shirt and cut his leg off at the knee with his pocket knife. He used metal clips from his fishing kit to clamp the bleeding arteries, and then he dragged himself out of his truck and drove into town to find help. That same year, a bulldozer operator named Donald Wyman was clearing trees from a forest in western Pennsylvania when a massive oak crushed his left leg. Using a bootlace as his tourniquet and a three-inch pocket knife, Wyman amputated his broken leg below the knee. In 1997, Doug Goodale, a 33-year-old Maine lobster man, cut off his right arm above the elbow after getting it caught in a winch. While he was reaching for the winch cutoff switch, the right sleeve of Goodale's loose-fitting oilskin slicker became snagged in the winding rope, pulling it into the winch head. His hand and then his arm were drawn in and crushed by the machine, and it actually flipped him over and completely out of his boat. Hanging from the winch, all he could think about were his children growing up without a father. Goodale managed to pull himself onto the deck of his boat, but the process of doing that dislocated his shoulder. Still caught in the winch, he reached for a nearby knife and began to cut through his arm. He succeeded in amputating his own arm at the elbow and then bleeding badly. He guided the ship into harbor where he was able to alert the authorities. He survived and returned home to his children. In 2007, Al Hill, a 66-year-old from Iowa Hill, California, was in the woods cutting down trees when he became pinned underneath one. The felled tree was too heavy to lift, and Hill was in a really remote area with no cell service. He remained in agonizing pain under that tree for 11 hours until he made the decision to act. Hill used his pocket knife to sever his own leg below the knee. Once he was freed, he continued yelling for help, and fatefully, a passing neighbor heard him. Once the two men were far enough out of the woods, the neighbor called emergency services, and Hill was airlifted to a hospital. He ultimately survived. And 2007 must have been a banner year for horrific injuries, because that same year, a South Carolina farmer named Samson Parker was working alone in his field when he got his right arm stuck in a mechanical picker. During his efforts to break the machine in order to free his arm, the picker caught fire. At this point, he not only faced the immense pain of having his hand and arm mangled by the machine, but now his flesh was burning. His options were either take action or burn to death, so Parker decided to take his three-inch pocket knife and saw through his own arm. An off-duty firefighter named Doug Spinks saw the smoke from the picker and followed it to the source. He found Parker burned and bleeding profusely, and Spinks worked to save his life. In recounting the ordeal later, Parker said that he believed it was the fire that kept him from passing out from the shock and pain of sawing his own arm off with a pocket knife. And here's a more recent story for you. 
On August 17th, 2018, Myron Schlafman was in his garage making sausage with a meat grinder. And I know you know where this is going. As he went to retrieve some of the meat from the electric grinder, he accidentally hit the foot pedal, which sucked his left arm into the machine. Immediately, his hand was sliced to ribbons and his arm bones were broken, and he found himself stuck to the machine. Schlafman was a 69-year-old Vietnam War veteran, and he knew immediately what his choices were. Bleed to death stuck in the grinder or free himself and get help. The choice was easy. Schlafman reached for a nearby knife and got to work. He escaped and called the police, who tied off the wound. Schlafman is alive and well today thanks to his calm thinking and quick action. If you've made it this far in the episode without, you know, like gagging or passing out, I'm really impressed with you. There are so many other stories like this. I only picked a few examples, all to illustrate the point that we can do seemingly impossible things. So now that you know what people who are put in horrible predicaments are capable of, let's move on to the subject of today's episode, Aaron Ralston. I watched a fantastic movie to prepare for this episode called 127 Hours, directed by Danny Boyle and starring James Franco. I highly recommend that you watch this film if you really want to feel like you're there with Ralston during his ordeal. It was very well made, and apparently it's quite accurate, according to Ralston himself. I was able to watch all of it, except (laughs) the part that showed the amputation. During that part, I folded laundry. (laughs) I love this podcast, but I'm sorry to say that I'm not willing to pass out in my living room for it. (laughs) With that said, let's get started. Aaron Ralston was born on October 27th, 1975 in Marion, Ohio. When he was 12, his family moved to Denver, Colorado, and there he learned to ski and backpack and his love of outdoor sports grew. He attended college at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He finished with degrees in mechanical engineering and French with a minor in piano. Ralston pursued outdoor activities as much as he could while he was in school by playing intramural sports and working as a rafting guide during the summer. In 1996, Ralston became interested in climbing after reading about the Mount Everest disaster where eight mountaineers died on the mountain in a storm. And I think this gives you a peek into his personality, right? I mean, anyone who reads about eight climbers dying and thinks, man, climbing seems awesome. This is someone who's just got adventure running through his veins. After Ralston's own harrowing experience in the canyon, he told a reporter that the story of the Mountaineers made him wonder what he would do in a similar situation. And I'm sure he never imagined at the time that this kind of passing observation was maybe a premonition. Ralston graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1997, and then he worked for Intel for five years, hopping around offices to Phoenix, Arizona, Tacoma, Washington, and then Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was in New Mexico where he volunteered with a local search and rescue team. In the spring of 2002, he moved to Aspen, Colorado, and took a retail job at Ute Mountaineering and began training to become a mountain guide. Standing six foot two, thin and fit, Ralston began building an impressive resume as a Colorado outdoorsman. 
He soloed 45 of Colorado's 59 14ers in the winter of 2002. That is an incredible feat. Those mountains are hard enough to climb when the weather is good, let alone the winter. And for those that don't know, the Colorado 14ers are the peaks in Colorado that are over 14,000 feet tall. In June of that same year, he summited Mount McKinley, a staggering 20,320-foot giant in Alaska's Denali National Park. Ralston's brand of adventure was not without risk. In March of 2003, Ralston and two friends were backcountry skiing on Resolution Peak in central Colorado when they were caught in an avalanche. Ralston later told the Denver Post, I just remember rolling down with it. Powder was swirling all around and I was trying to breathe, but I would breathe a mixture of snow and air and you'd swallow it like seawater. It was horrible. It should have killed us. When the avalanche slowed and finally stopped, Ralston found himself buried up to his neck in snow. Luckily, a friend was able to free him, and together they dug out their third friend. I'm betting that around this time, Ralston is feeling at least a little bit indestructible, and maybe that's what led him to make some not-so-safe decisions on his next adventure. Less than a month after surviving the avalanche, Ralston embarked on a solo day hike in the Utah desert. On April 26, 2003, Ralston, who was 27 years old at the time, went canyoneering alone through Blue John Canyon. Blue John Canyon is located just south of the Horseshoe Canyon area of Canyonlands National Park in Utah. He didn't tell anyone where he was going, and he neglected to bring any means of communication. He also left without his trusty Swiss Army knife because he couldn't find it that morning. Ralston was hiking through slot canyons, and for those that don't know what a slot canyon is, it's a very narrow gorge with steep, high walls, often made from soft rock like basalt or sandstone. They're deeper than they are wide, and they can be really dangerous. They're prone to flash floods, and they offer few ways in or out. Definitely not for the claustrophobic. While Ralston was descending the lower stretches of the slot canyon, he climbed down a boulder, which became dislodged from his weight. As he and the boulder fell into the canyon, the boulder first smashed his left hand and then crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. Thanks, or maybe no thanks, to the time that he spent volunteering for search and rescue, Ralston knew what he faced. The day that he was pinned by the boulder was a Saturday. The stark reality that no one knew where he was, that he had no means of communication, that his work wouldn't even report him missing until Tuesday, and that the police would then wait an additional 24 hours to even file a missing persons report meant that no one would even think of looking for him until Wednesday afternoon at the earliest. He took everything out of his pack and surveyed it, trying to gauge what he could use to get himself out of this situation. It was lacking at best. Most frighteningly, he gauged his remaining water at about 12 ounces or 350 milliliters. To put this in perspective, 
An average sized man resting in a temperate environment needs one liter or about 32 ounces of water every day just to stay alive. That's the minimum to support life. And Ralston is not resting. He's terribly injured. And his body is reacting in all the ways a body would to horrible injury. He's not in a temperate environment. He's in the Utah desert where spring temperatures swing from the high 80s or 90s during the height of the day to the low 40s at night. And he's got 12 ounces of water total for however long he's stuck there. On top of that, he's wearing a t-shirt and shorts and he doesn't have any additional clothes in his pack. I can't imagine what the sum total of this harsh reality did to his hope of surviving, but he was not going to die without a fight. So he set about rationing the remaining water and food that he had left. From Saturday through Monday, Ralston tried every means he could think of to lift or break the boulder that was pinning his right hand. On Sunday, he used his climbing gear and rigged ropes in an attempt to hoist the boulder off of his hand, to no avail. On Monday, he re-rigged the ropes and tried again. Ralston later said, At no point was I ever able, with any of the rope mechanics, to get the boulder to budge even microscopically. Eventually, he resolved to use an old utility tool that he found in his pack to chip away at the wall and the boulder. Ralston later said of the tool, it was not a leather man, but what you'd get if you bought a $15 flashlight and got a free multi-use tool. The blade of the tool was dull to begin with and chipping away for hours and days at the rock walls and the boulder only made it duller. At this point, Ralston should be dead from, I mean, take your pick, right? Exposure, hypothermia, dehydration, shock, but he's still alive delirious and starting to lose it, but alive. It was on this third day trapped in the canyon that he decided drastic action was needed. Ralston prepared himself for what he needed to do. He needed to cut his right arm off mid-forearm. He experimented making tourniquets out of the items that he had with him, and he attempted unsuccessfully to make cuts to his forearm using the dull blade of the utility tool that he was previously using to chip away at the boulder. Ralston said, essentially, I got my surgical table ready and I applied the knife to my arm and started sawing back and forth, but I didn't even break the skin. I couldn't even cut the hair off of my arm. The knife was so dull. Ralston ran out of water on Tuesday. Already really dehydrated, he knew that without a source of water, death would come soon. On Wednesday, the fifth day of his ordeal, Ralston decided to drink his own urine in a last desperate play to stave off dehydration. He also managed to puncture the skin on his arm with the utility tool but he then realized that there was no way he'd be able to get through the bones. He carved his name, his date of birth, and presumed date of death into the sandstone canyon wall and videotaped his last goodbyes to his family. With no food, no water, no way to free his arm, he did not expect to survive the night. As he shivered through what he thought was his final night on earth, he began to hallucinate.
He had a vision of himself playing with a future child while missing part of his right arm. And Ralston later said it was that vision that gave him hope that he would live. After waking at dawn on Thursday, he discovered that his hand and forearm had begun to decompose due to lack of circulation. In a moment of sheer desperation, rage, and desire to extricate himself from his rotting hand, Ralston had an epiphany. He could break his arm bones using torque against his trapped arm. He was able to break his radius first and then his ulna. Once both bones were snapped, he created a tourniquet from the tubing from his camelback and used the dull blade of the utility tool to cut through his skin and muscle, having to use the pliers to break the tougher tendons and ligaments. Ralston took care to sever his major arteries last. This painful process took about an hour, but finally, after five and a half days trapped in the canyon, Ralston was free. He wrapped the stump of his arm with a plastic bag and created a makeshift sling out of his camelback to keep his arm elevated. At a press conference later, Ralston explained, All the desires, joys, and euphorias of a future life came rushing into me. Maybe this is how I handled the pain. I was so happy to be taking action. So what makes a person capable of persisting in those kind of circumstances and ultimately defying death as Ralston had? Al Siebert, who's an ex-paratrooper and author of the 1996 book, The Survivor Personality, has studied hundreds of stories of survival. Siebert says that survivors rapidly read reality. When something horrible happens, they immediately accept the situation for what it is, and they consciously decide that they will do everything in their power to get through it. What Siebert is saying is that survivors are people who can look at dreadful circumstances and neither become angry about those circumstances nor resign to them. Getting angry is just a waste of precious energy, says Siebert, and playing the victim dramatically increases your likelihood of dying. Once a survivor accepts their circumstances, they start to look very hard, but also very imaginatively for solutions. Peter Sudfeld, professor emeritus of psychology at the University of British Columbia, who's researched survival psychology for more than 40 years, says, Beyond the fundamental will to survive, the foremost character trait of a survivor is intellectual flexibility. People under high stress are more likely to become rigid, which only decreases their chances of survival. Survivors are extremely adaptable people. They know how to improvise. If one solution doesn't work, they try another. They don't fixate on one answer. They keep an open mind, searching for options, developing strategies. And here are two other important survivor indicators optimism, and unflappability. Optimists recognize that their situation is temporary. They are able to isolate the most pressing problem and try various solutions. If those solutions fail, optimists understand it's not because there is no solution, but because they just haven't found it yet. Optimists ultimately believe that they have at least some control over their fate. To be unflappable simply means you don't freak out. This is extremely important because panic kills. Aaron Ralston managed not to panic throughout his six-day ordeal. 
I imagine that this combined with the vision that he had of survival and his dogged determination to make that vision a reality is what kept him alive when, quite frankly, he should have been dead. After freeing himself from the boulder that nearly took his life and actually did take his hand and part of his arm, Ralston's ordeal was not over. Now he had to get out of the canyon and back to civilization, and he had to do it all one-handed. Ralston proceeded to climb out of the slot canyon, and he then rappelled down a 65-foot sheer wall, and then he started hiking in the heat of the day, dehydrated to a point that would have killed many, if not most others. Ralston hiked for six miles and finally encountered a family on vacation from the Netherlands. Eric and Monique Meyer and their son, Andy, who gave him food and water and hurried to alert the authorities. At 3 p.m., Ralston was finally rescued by a helicopter, which had begun searching for him when friends in Aspen, worried because he hadn't shown up for work, called the Utah authorities. Ralston was rescued approximately four hours after amputating his arm. At the time of his rescue, he had lost 40 pounds and 25% of his blood volume. Ralston was first flown to Allen Memorial Hospital in Moab, Utah, where he walked unaided off the helicopter to a waiting gurney. Later that day, he was transferred to St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado, where he underwent the first of several surgical procedures to prepare his right arm for a prosthesis. Three days later, a team of 13 rangers trekked into the canyon to retrieve Ralston's hand. Using a hydraulic jack and a grip hoist, it took them an hour to lift the boulder, which weighed in at a staggering 800 pounds. Ralston's hand was recovered and was cremated, and he was given the ashes. He returned to the accident scene six months later on his 28th birthday with Tom Brokaw to film a Dateline NBC special. He scattered the ashes of his hand, saying, this is where they belong. He later noted that surviving being trapped in the canyon had given him a sense of invincibility when it should have humbled him. But he didn't stay invincible for long. After losing friends to suicide and breaking up with his girlfriend, he spiraled into a depression that finally humbled him. Once recovered from that depression, he decided to stop using adventure-seeking to define himself or his worth. In the 15 years since his accident, Ralston has continued to triumph in the wilderness, becoming the first person to climb all 59 of Colorado's 14ers solo in the winter and has transformed what could have been a really tragic experience into a lucrative public speaking career. And remember the vision he had on his last night trapped in the canyon of himself with an amputated arm playing with a child? Well, in August of 2009, Ralston married Jessica Trusty, and their first child was born in February 2010. That's it for this episode, folks. Thank you so much for joining me. Check out the show notes if you want more information on Aaron Ralston. And I hope you remember that so far, you've survived 100% of the stuff life has thrown at you. You've gotten through all that. You can handle anything to come.
Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I hope the stories that I share put a big, bright spotlight on the potential that lives in all of us. Check out the show notes for the sources that I use to make each episode. And if you like the podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, I'd be so honored to tell your stories on the show. I'm talking about stories of everyday heroism, courage, and hope. Like, did your great-grandparents write each other for months during the war and it kept their love alive? Did your mom or dad save you from calamity when you were a kid? Did a small act of kindness, like stopping for a stranded motorist, lead to something much greater? Did your pet save your life? These are the stories I would love to share. Email me at citizenhopepodcast at gmail.com for a chance to have your story featured on the show. Now I want you to go forth and kick ass because you are amazing. Amazing.